Welcome to the Reimagine Medicine podcast. We look forward to delving into topics that are shaping clinical care, medical research, medical education, and challenging us all to reimagine medicine. Each month, we bring together clinicians, researchers, educators, healthcare thought leaders, and medical students to share the experiences and ideas that are fueling their efforts. In this episode, we will discuss cyber hacking and its threat to healthcare. I am Dr. Johnny Lifshitz. I'm Dr. Katie Bright. We are faculty members at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Thank you for joining us. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and their guests and do not represent the opinions of the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, or Banner Health. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, consult your personal family physician for medical care. Imagine if your insulin pump suddenly overdosed. A patient's bedside medication pump malfunctioned. Your grandmother's pacemaker suddenly stopped working. A children's hospital lost internet access from a cyber attack. These are all things that research has illustrated can actually happen. Hospitals have been the targets of malicious attacks from hackers. The CyberMed Summit brings together the leading minds in cybersecurity to develop solutions to keep patients safe and the medical technology we depend on secure. We're so glad you're with us. Joining us today are Dr. Christian Demeff and Dr. Jeff Tully. Dr. Christian Demeff is founder of the CyberMed Summit, an emergency medicine physician and a researcher, a University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, class of 2014 graduate. Dr. Demeff is a board certified in emergency medicine and is currently a clinical informatics fellow at the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Jeff Tully is also a founder of the CyberMed Summit, a pediatric physician and a security researcher. Dr. Tully is a graduate from the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, class of 2014. He's board certified in pediatrics and is currently an anesthesiology resident at the University of California, Davis Medical Center. Thank you both for coming. I've had the privilege of working with you as med students and as residents, and it's so wonderful to be able to showcase some of your recent endeavors for our listeners. Question for you, Dr. Demeff. Can you just share with us how you developed this passion for healthcare cybersecurity? My interest in cybersecurity started when I was 12 years old. Um, I became familiar with computers that were in my neighborhood from several of my friends, and they showed me this new strange world to me, which was the, the internet and what was available on it. And they taught me that there were things you can do to software, to code, to systems uh, that made them do things they weren't intended to do. Uh, we never did anything wrong or inappropriate or anything like that. But what it showed me was that it was the curiosity, the adventure, the exploration of these systems that really excited me. I was then hooked. Uh, I started hanging out in hacker circles on various hacker uh, forums online. Uh, became very interested in the vulnerabilities of critical infrastructure. And I also luckily developed a passion for medicine. And then practicing in a hospital, I recognized quickly how dependent physicians and modern medicine was on connected medical technology. And that with my hacker roots, I recognized how vulnerable these systems were. So it was a natural marriage between the two to apply the critical eye of hacking to the technical systems of medicine. And what we have now is um, the research that I'm very interested in, which is what happens when these devices, these in, this infrastructure of medicine is attacked. Is there a possibility that our patients could be harmed? It sounds like a story about how I got involved in computers, except the internet didn't work or wasn't even in existence when I started. It surprises us. It surprised me last year when I went to the summit for the first time that these devices are even hackable. Is there a nugget that we can share with our listeners about why these devices that seem to be core elements are hackable? Is there a specific vulnerability? 
It's a great question. I think that medical technology uh, is designed to do what it's supposed to do, to save patients' lives. You know, we, modern medicine's amazing. We've made so many technological advances into diagnose, cure, and treat disease. That's amazing. Most, much of that is built on the foundations of technology, but what we, what we didn't do is develop brand new technologies. We adopted them from other technological ad- advances. So the same systems that power the f- power finance or uh, that are involved in the components of your home computer, they're the same, it's the same software, it's the same hardware um, that you have in your home that's employed in healthcare. And they're equally vulnerable. You know, everyone's grown up now with computers that have gotten viruses or people are now familiar that the technology they interact with is vulnerable to cyber attack. There's no difference um, just because it's a hospital. I like to say viruses and hackers don't stop at the digital borders of hospitals just because there's sick patients inside. It's kind of a wake-up call for me, so I was hoping that, and I'm kind of included in this group, for those of us who might have, I don't want to say have our heads in the sand, but are a little bit naive to this because we're physicians just trying to take care of patients and utilize technology because we know it's it's great. We've had great advancements for our patients, but don't really want to think like there could be people out there that might do something like this to a vulnerable population. What do you have to say say to us? I mean, who's at risk? Well, I think anyone who becomes a patient's potentially at risk. But what we have to understand is that there are um, there are many different motivations that people may employ when talking about hacking healthcare. Yes, uh, the classic trope in television is that there's some malicious evil person in a black hoodie typing furiously on a keyboard trying to assassinate some VIP or head of state. And those are pretty far-fetched. Not to say that they're impossible or that that's not something we should talk about, but that's not the thing that scares me the most. It's the accidental things. It's what happened in 2017 when WannaCry, a virus, spread to the National Health Service of the United Kingdom and affected 81 hospitals. The people that wrote that virus didn't intend for it to infect hospitals. It just mindlessly spread because the laws that govern it are lines of computer code. And none of those lines included an exclusion for don't go to places where patients are treated. So when we talk about motivations for hacking healthcare, we really have to consider that perhaps the biggest threat is not someone who intends to harm patients, but someone who accidentally harms patients trying to do something else. For the last decade, we have had security researchers showing us that these devices are vulnerable. We don't want to have to wait for someone to die before we make change. It just takes one person to be hacked for people to lose confidence in healthcare, to lose confidence in medical devices, and they won't seek treatment when they need it. If patients are afraid to go to the hospital and get pacemakers because they're afraid of being hacked, they're far more likely to die from their heart block or some other condition that requires a pacemaker than they are to be hacked by a malicious person in, on the internet. Question for you, Dr. Tolley. Now our listeners know that you are both alumni of our great College of Medicine, Phoenix. Can you let us know how you feel like your education here might have fueled this passion or helped prepare you for these endeavors that you've um, embarked upon to uh, combat healthcare's newest threats? Absolutely. Um, it's an honor to be back on campus when Christian and I first started, which was back in 2010, which feels like a lot longer than eight years ago. Um, the campus was about a quarter of the size as it is right now, and we are sitting in an absolutely beautiful new building that I don't even think was finished the last time we were here for CyberMed 18 months ago. So this campus, the medical college, um, and the associated allied health uh, schools have 
been continuously evolving um, in front of our eyes. And I think that that was something that Christian and I, both being fortunate enough to, to kind of have a choice between the Tucson campus and the Phoenix campus, we really kind of latched on to Phoenix as this uh, newer school with a lot of possibility, uh, traditions that weren't fully established, but were there for us to start and nurture. And um, just a faculty that from day one was very willing to let us dream up crazy ideas and then help us execute them within the confines of our medical training. Um, as far as the quality of the medical training, uh, having worked with you at places like Wesley Clinic, caring for patients. I mean, I'm a, I'm the physician that I am today because of, um, of the U of A, but the, the ease with which I come up with projects and execute them and have new ideas, I think is something that I can directly trace back to how we were encouraged during our formative years here. So for me, it's, it's impossible to separate that from, from what we're doing today. Yeah, we will hear a little bit later from one of our medical students currently who is encouraged to pursue passions in the same way. Jeff or Dr. Tully, do you can you explain to our listeners what is the why? Why do you do this? You're already in residency and have very little free time. Uh, what is really driving you to spend extra hours to not only plan the administrative aspect but even the in, uh, the content for this particular summit? Uh, please feel free to call me Jeff. Um, uh, I think that it's very easy for us in healthcare to lose sight of the larger picture, why we do what we do, uh, especially from a day-to-day basis. Uh, burnout is a real thing, especially in graduate medical education, and I have good days and I have bad days. And to have something kind of outside of that that allows me to take a look at the bigger picture and realize that I can potentially help people on a larger scale than I can do one patient at a time, one OR case at a time, is very impactful. Um, we'll have a chance to hear from Dr. Schwartz later, who I think is the prototypical model of this, a uh, very established and well-respected burn surgeon uh, who kind of transitioned to a, a role where she now impacts you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of patients. So to have that type of perspective and to take that with me as I go through my training, I think actually gives me a little bit more resiliency than I otherwise would have. It's remarkable. Having planned summits and conferences myself, I know it can be challenging. Did individuals like Bo Woods and Josh Corman leap at the opportunity? Did you have to convince them? How has it been received in the cyber med community or in the hacker community to come and join a conference like this in Phoenix? I think as physicians who are somewhat literate in the cybersecurity uh, realm, I mean, obviously we're not uh, daily security professionals that are working on these issues um, with the level of training and expertise that others have. But as as people who are able to talk about these these topics from both the perspective of a security researcher and a physician, I think that's a that's an interesting niche, and that's something that people like Bo and Josh gravitate towards. Uh, they are incredibly good at uh, policy. They are incredibly good at uh, engagement and collaboration, um, but they are not physicians. They don't have that training, and so I think they were very astute to realize that there is a collaboration that can exist there that can allow us to kind of cross the traditional domains that we may have otherwise been constrained to. Yeah, and I actually see that playing out on Twitter, because after last year's summit, I follow the two of you, I follow Josh, I follow Bo, uh, which really helps to keep me engaged, uh, at least in the wings. So I haven't attended the summit yet. I'm hoping that maybe I can uh, become one of the invitees for next year. You had a standing invitation, and whoever failed to get that to you you. should receive a stiff reprimand. (laughs) Wonderful. So I was hoping I could explore a little bit about some of the things that happened uh, today during the during the summit. Um, I understand that you conduct clinical simulations where you place physicians in real life situations where some of the systems and technologies we depend on go might go awry. 
which I find amazing and terrifying at the same time uh, as I place myself in, in a situation like that. Um, in fact, you kind of intentionally alter the systems and the technologies during the exercise to demonstrate kind of how easily this, this could occur, whether intentional or unintentional. What have the reactions been to this exercise? The physician reactions to the simulations are almost universally the same. One, they reflect that they shouldn't have come and they're very angry for me inviting them and not telling them what was going to happen because <laughs> they find themselves in front of an audience uh, performing a very stressful clinical simulation. And we craft these simulations for, in a way for them to be uncomfortable because they are striking at the heart of what we're trying to get across, which is that our reliance on these technologies is so, so vast that we don't know what to do when they fail. I say that I'm of the generations of doctors trained that have never used paper records to chart until six months into my residency training. Uh, I had never written a hand prescription. Uh, I don't know how I would function without an electronic health record. The reality of it is that modern medicine is so heavily connected, and we design these simulations to show these physicians that um, we're, we're in a really tough spot if we can't utilize that technology. So for example, in one of the simulations today, they're taking care of a stroke patient. Um, a 70-year-old lady comes in, she's, she can't move her arm, she can't move her leg, half of her face is paralyzed, and she's within the window of treatment. Vital to this patient's care is a CT scan to determine if her stroke is a clot that we can treat with medicine or if it's a bleed in the brain, wherein if we give that medicine, we will make things worse. In the simulation, the CT scanner goes down. It's infected with malware and they are unable to perform a CT scan on a stroke patient. And they're left with not only the clinical decision of what they should do, what is the best science, what is the best medicine tell them to do, but also with the ethical dilemma of, should I give a medicine to this patient and play the 80% odds that it may help them or the 20% chance that it may kill them almost immediately? These are the things that are not outside the realm of possibility. We've seen ransomware attacks infect hospitals, and we know that CT scanners, some of them, are running vulnerable software. So what we need to do is use these simulations as tools to educate physicians and other allied health professionals on the vulnerability of these systems so they can have, as we've been talking about all day today during the simulations and summit, a great plan B. What are you going to do when your technology fails you? I'll just add that from the perspective of people who attended who aren't clinicians but are more security-based, we had um, two gentlemen who are uh, very esteemed researchers, uh, Jonathan Butts and Billy Rios, and they gave a talk today, and they said that if you essentially work on discovering vulnerabilities and you leave it at that and you say, here's what I found, and kind of that's where my role stops, you miss the opportunity to really examine the effects of those vulnerabilities. And so what we do with our clinical training is say, we're going to take the security research that you did, and we're to show you how that type of vulnerability might affect the physiology of a patient. And so for people who are used to dealing in a very theoretical aspect and say, I've been working on this in the controlled confines of a lab, it gives them a chance to see sort of the implications of their research in a real world setting. It sounds like we're taking security researchers back into medical school and giving them hands-on fail-safe training, so to speak. <coughs> Some of the plan Bs that I've heard of is literally unplugging machines that either may have vulnerabilities or not have upgradable software. With that being said, 
Um, we want to focus on the patient and the healthcare provider to give them the best tools. What do either of you uh, do in your daily practice to check equipment? How do you encourage those patients, even if it is with a step tracker or a heart rate monitor, that it's working the way they think it is? I, as an anesthesiologist, am in, in a little bit different of a position because I'm sort of forced to, in order to provide safe care for my patient, I have to have a plan A, B, C, and D, and I have to be able to administer an anesthetic and ventilate a patient if the power goes out and there's a major earthquake. So for me, that's just part of my daily practice that I, I always have a fail-safe and I always check the mechanical elements of the tools that I use to care for patients. But I think that we can all probably get a little complacent with uh, the things that we use on a daily basis, like the electronic medical records or the laboratory systems. Um, um, drug dispensers and things like that. Uh, the motto of the American Society of Anesthesiologists is vigilance, and I think that's something that we can adopt no matter what area of medicine you practice, and just always uh, you know, ask yourself, is what I'm seeing, is the information that I'm receiving, is that consistent with my examination, my, my history, my physical, does that kind of um, you know, match up? We have the habit of implicitly trusting the technology that we use, and that's something that um, I think has evolved as an adaptation mechanism for the pressures of the environment that we work in, but I think we should all just be very aware that um, we need to be able to do what we do and take care of patients even in its absence. Your question really struck uh, a chord with me because I, I can uh, shamefully reflect to say I don't on a daily basis when I'm working in a clinical environment uh, practice what I preach. I don't always you look at the tools that I use with a critical eye and have that plan A, B, C, and D or to fully think about the cybersecurity implications or the security posture of these. It's because there are 30 people in the waiting room. I'm in charge of 12 sick patients. I just finished a cardiac arrest resuscitation. Uh, so what we have here is an interesting problem where clinicians are in a position to make meaningful change in this realm to advocate for patient safety, to have valuable conversations with regulators and device manufacturers and do what's right, but they're already spread so thin. Mm -hmm. So our messaging needs to be very uh, well thought out. I don't think, and Jeff and I talk about this often, we don't think we need to turn doctors into cybersecurity experts. If you ask me, what would be better use of physicians' time? Two weeks of reading journal articles about the latest treatments in their field or two weeks of cybersecurity training, it's going to be the new medicines in their field. They're going to save far more people learning about the latest advancements in their field clinically than they're going to save lives learning cybersecurity. But is there some uh, middle ground? Can we elevate physician and allied health professional knowledge on the subject up enough that we can make a change without having to overburden them. Plus, we'd also not want to see the backlash um, that we have seen a little bit in the clinician space regarding cybersecurity. Um, the pushback to say, I have so much on my plate, I have to worry about billing and seeing new patients. This is just another module I have to listen. This is another level of regulation that I just don't find applicable. 
I'm glad that you said that because that actually was my very next question was how do we insight change and, and get our physicians who are so hardworking sort of on board and what are our next steps to help sort of change the landscape and the situation. So thanks for answering that so eloquently, both of you. Yeah, thank you for sharing your insights on recognizing the vulnerabilities and developing solutions with a patient in mind regarding cybersecurity and healthcare. It's been a pleasure talking with you and we have to take a break, but we're going to continue our discussion with our next guests in a minute. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you both. Dr. Johnny Lifshitz serves as the director of the Translational Neurotrauma Research Program, which is a joint venture through Barrow Neurological Institute at Phoenix Children's Hospital, the Department of Child Health at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, and the Phoenix Veterans Affair Healthcare System. Dr. Katie Bright is the chair of the Curriculum Committee and co-director of the Family, Community, and Preventative Medicine Clerkship at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, placing students with community clinical partners all across the state. She is a family physician and the vice president of primary care services at Bayless Integrated Healthcare. Welcome back to the Reimagined Medicine podcast. We are pleased to have Dr. Suzanne Schwartz and Patrick O'Connor join our conversation. Dr. Suzanne Schwartz serves as the Associate Director for Science and Strategic Partnerships with the Center for Devices and Radiologic Health at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Patrick O'Connor is a third-year medical student with the UA College of Medicine, Phoenix. He has attended both CyberMed summits and is currently working on a project with Dr. Tolley and Demeth. Dr. Schwartz, you have a lot of experience, and we're going to tap your brain during this part of our episode, but how do you see the current landscape of cybersecurity and healthcare? So first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to participate in this podcast. It really is an honor. And with respect to the landscape, this is an area that has been evolving over the past several years within healthcare. And we've been privileged to have the opportunity to be part of that journey and hopefully to also drive that journey. The progress has been happening, I would say, incrementally. We're looking forward to seeing greater change occur over the next few years. But there's a lot of work to be done as we proceed with this journey. When we look across that landscape, undoubtedly there are obstacles. There's obstacles that are going to be there that prevent us from implementing specific policies and procedures that are necessary to prevent cyber hacking. Can you walk us through some of the higher level obstacles? Uh, Yeah, sure. I, I would actually reframe the question slightly in that we really can't prevent cyber hacking. I think from FDA's perspective, it's first of all, and for the public, really recognizing that cyber hacking is a reality today. It's going to go on, whether it's within the healthcare and public health space or in other sectors of industry and critical infrastructure. So what we really need to be doing is focusing on where we can make a difference, and that is with respect to how do we best protect that critical infrastructure? How do we best build new devices that have more robust security within them to start off with? And then how do we make sure that those devices are being maintained and managed in the most vigilant manner throughout their product life cycle? And that's a challenge. There's no question about that. 
especially when you're trying to balance both the perspective of driving innovation and encouraging great new technologies to come on the market, as well as assuring that we're keeping up and keeping a pace with the security that needs to build in, be built into those devices as well. Yeah, being the father of three kids, I know we're constantly trying to make sure their vaccinations are up to date. And so it's similar, thinking about it that way, that we want to make sure we're ahead of the game and alert to all those elements that are in place. It, it is, and I would say that one of the biggest obstacles or challenges that we face today within healthcare is what's called the legacy drag. It's, it's the legacy equipment, the capital equipment that hospitals, healthcare institutions make to bring in to their organizations that are uh, huge investments of money and that are expected to remain in place for 5, 10, 15, even 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about CT scans and MRIs as good examples, these are not computer laptops that you can change out every few years as the security is improved upon them or as updates can be made to the operating systems. So how do you really balance that need to, number one, address the economics, the real economics for healthcare organizations that do make those investments and do need to maintain this equipment for the lifetime of its ability to function effectively and yet at the same time to deliver from a safe and secure perspective? That is a great, great insight and perspective. You know, I'm thinking about that in my mind, just the mindful finance as a provider, we're always thinking about depreciation and overhead mm -hmm. costs, and you want to get the full life of the machine, but we know technology is changing faster than than that machine. So it's it's a conundrum. So it thanks is. for bringing that to the forefront of our discussion. I'm going to change gears just a little bit. During the beginning part of our podcast, we got to discuss with Dr. Demeth and um, Tolly a little bit about some terrifying but really important simulations they were doing with 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 physicians and I understand that you also engage in policy simulations I was hoping maybe you could expand upon the participants and sort of what the goals of these projects are so in general anytime that we conduct simulations I think that the, the real benefit of doing so is it creates number one a safe and a controlled space where everyone who's a participant everybody who has a seat around the table does not have to feel in any way threatened uh, but can actually provide their perspective and it will hopefully address policy that uh, uh, is acceptable and implementable by organizations uh, regardless of their size, uh, regardless of the resources that they have, and uh, that span across whether uh, they are uh, delivering health care, whether they are manufacturers, uh, whether they are patients, clinicians, insurance companies, uh, really in t across the entire ecosystem. 
Yeah, when I hear you talking about implementing new plans and new policies, I always think about it, having to assemble a new team, a new team of cybersecurity experts or even medically oriented cyber doctors and a variety of other people. Is there a specific role that uh, the FDA and, the, and DHS may serve in this in terms of either assigning a specific number of people to serve in a particular capacity or a type of training that's necessary to be ahead of the game? We have enjoyed working with DHS, specifically a part of DHS that has been involved in industri industrial control systems now for several years and, in fact, just recently formalized that relationship through a memorandum of agreement that we're you know, really delighted to have announced uh, back in October. And I think that what that relationship really uh, showcases is the capability of, first of all, two government agencies being able to leverage the resources and the separate expertise, the diverse expertise that each has in order to solve a rather uh, complex set of problems that has both technical components to it as well as clinical. Uh, and in addition to the technical and clinical, there are other considerations as well from an engineering perspective, uh, from a public health perspective, and being able to create teams that then work together in a partnered manner uh, and on a continuum is a very effective way for us to be able to address issues that are brought to our attention around medical device vulnerabilities. So we do have designated teams, both within the FDA as well as with our partners at DHS. And it has been a very productive relationship thus far, and uh, we look forward to continuing to advance that relationship further. I've had the um, privilege to look over some of the FDA outlines for cybersecurity recommendations that I know you've had a big part in um, contributing and producing. Can you um, just let us know what some recommendations might be for hospitals, ambulatory clinics, and other organizations? What, what should we implement to improve our cybersecurity? It's a great question. Um, so I, I just want to make one clarifying point in that uh, when FDA issues guidance, which is the outlines mm -hmm. that you're speaking about, um, our guidance really is addressing our regulated industry, our, the medical device manufacturers. At the same time, we recognize that the area of cybersecurity is an area that demands whole of community, that is one of shared ownership and shared responsibility. So while our guidance isn't necessarily directed at healthcare organizations or at practitioners, you know, we do hope that they read the guidance and that they participate in many of the convenings, the public workshops and meetings that we have because they are such critical stakeholders. We do include other types of communications and blogs that we think provide some additional tips that are important for healthcare organizations. And some of the very basic ones are cyber hygiene. They include not leaving passwords around visible to works uh, on workstations. 
It includes really working very closely together with manufacturers around even from the beginning when you're making business procurement-related decisions, knowing what it is that you're actually purchasing and building into the purchasing contracts, what the terms should be for support, patching, and maintenance of these devices. The earlier that healthcare organizations are able to get that information and control that information, the better position they will be in terms of being able to protect their systems. The other area that we are uh, working on you know, as we go into 2019 is this concept of a bill of materials, a cybersecurity bill of materials. And what that refers to is the ability for healthcare organizations and any you know, customer or consumer that's purchasing the medical device, that they have visibility on the component parts of that device so that they can have that awareness of what potential vulnerabilities may exist in those devices. And as we know, you can't protect things that you don't know whether you have them or not. So it's really part of asset management. This conversation has triggered a lot of questions in our audience's mind, much the same way it triggered all kinds of opportunities in my head when I went to the Cybersecurity Summit last year. I'm sure that uh, this information is swirling in our listeners' head. Do you have a website or a link where our listeners can go to in order to get some quality information? Uh, yes, we do have a public-facing website, and I would actually encourage folks to participate in our public workshop, which you can either attend in person or by webcast. And the way to find out further information about that workshop, which is going to take place next month, January 29th and 30th, 2019, is by going to FDA.gov and going to Workshops and Conferences Medical Devices. Thank you. Excellent, a great nugget for us to uh, continue our, our quest for more knowledge. I have a question now for you, Patrick. You attended last year's CyberMed Summit as well as this year's event. I'm wondering how you got interested in cybersecurity, and also, could you let us know what impacted you most from the summit? Sure. Uh, thank you for having me on the podcast. Uh, in college, I got interested in a field of journalism called uh, data journalism, and it's where you try to present stories in interesting ways uh, by using data and, and different visualizations. And uh, in doing that, I kind of taught myself some programming to scrape websites and to better visualize data, and that's kind of where I first um, started reading more about cybersecurity in general. Um, and then as a medical student, I attended the first Cyber Med Summit, and that's how I got um, interested in the field even further. I met up with Christian and Jeff, and um, it's kind of been a great relationship since then. This year's conference has been a great experience. Uh, I feel like I've learned a lot about how to collaborate with um, professionals outside of the healthcare community in solving problems that definitely affect patient safety and uh, the lives of our patients, but may not seem like the obvious solution or the obvious stakeholders in um, their um, future treatments. Your, your response spurred an interesting question. <laughs> I, as a young kid, you were interested in computers, then journalism, but medicine was likely there the entire <laughs> time as well. Did you ever think that there was a possibility for these fields to merge in this way? I mean, 
your computer hacking life with your medical life, which could have been separate? Um, it was something that I always thought might be something I do on the periphery, something I do as a research or something that I would do um, just as an academic interest. Um, actually, when applying to medical schools, that was one thing that jumped out about me or jumped out about the program here was that there was a heavy emphasis on clinical informatics, which was not something that was as stressed I saw in other medical schools. Um, so I'm hoping one day to combine a lot of those interests together into one satisfying career. Awesome. It sounds like you're on your way. And if you use uh, Jeff and Christian, as role models, you can see how they were able to use the CyberMed as a relief from mm -hmm. medicine, but not uh, stray too far from their core elements. That being said, has working in cybersecurity and with Jeff and Christian changed your perspective on, of medicine? It's definitely made me more skeptical and more questioning of the methods we use to diagnose patients and to treat patients because going into medicine, I always thought about these things as kind of absolutes that um, when the data was presented, there was a certain likelihood that something could have happened in the test, but very rarely is there going to be anything that could go wrong. But um, cybersecurity has kind of given me another angle where I now think about things, um, that there's a whole another avenue where something could have changed and that uh, you really need to think about the patient's safety from that angle as well, not just from uh, how a laboratory value might be um, consistent with their physical exam and their history. So I'd like to spin off of that just a little sure. bit. I think it's really really neat that you found some great mentorship with Christian and Jeff. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this budding project that you have with them? Mm -hmm. So uh, I've been working with uh, Christian and Jeff on a couple of different projects, um, kind of building on the ideas presented here at the CyberMed Summit, um, trying to promote collaboration between different healthcare organizations and uh, promoting uh, uh, collaboration between cybersecurity researchers as well, and then trying to find out where kind of the pain points are in the process, um, where maybe the incentives are aligned to collaborate and trying to promote that um, so that the future of patients um, and their treatments are uh, in a better place. You've spoken about your career and the future of medicine uh, several times. Would you require new medical students or medical student applicants to have to take informatics courses the same way they have to take physiology and, and physics, so to speak, to get into medical school? Is it that essential to medical curriculum and medical practice of the future that it may need to be considered a requirement in the future? So I, I think that depending on what topics informatics you're teaching, I think that definitely should be core to uh, the curriculum of any medical school. I agree with Jeff and Christian that we shouldn't be training doctors to be cybersecurity researchers, um, as that would spend a, a lot of time in uh, an area of research where they may not actually be practicing that to their fullest extent. But I do think a lot of basic principles in informatics are important. Um, being able to interpret information, being able to understand how to best utilize information to take care of patients. And I think in, with cybersecurity in particular, particular, I think it's uh, important that we really discuss that as a risk and a benefit to any treatment that we uh, offer to a patient, that while we a certain treatment may be indicated and it may be the best option for a patient, that they will some treatments are going to have a risk of um, having a hacking inci uh, incident or having a cybersecurity risk just due to the nature of how they communicate with the physician's network and the hospital's network. Yeah, I'm sure our perspective medical students and anybody who's interested in medicine is a ton to think about. I think even practicing physicians have a ton to think about. <laughs> At least I know that I do. So thank you both so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure. I've really enjoyed all of your insight and all of the incredible knowledge you've imparted upon us today. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you.
Katie, I'm so glad that we've had this episode on cybersecurity um, because now you've had the opportunity, like our listeners, to learn about cybersecurity for the first time. Uh, when you told us during one of our previous recordings that you attended the Cyber Summit last year and it just blew your mind, now I totally understand why. I learned so much tonight and I'm really looking forward to next year's Cyber Cybersecurity Summit. And I have to tell you, I mean, I want to go back to the little bit of the head in the sand. I Not that I'm completely naive, but I think I'm with a lot of physicians when we just practice and take care of patients and don't totally understand sometimes some of these threats. And I think it's important. We need to gain some of this awareness and just practice with our eyes wide open. I really, what resonated with me a lot was when uh, Christian and Jeff stated that we shouldn't wait for a patient to die before we start taking action and becoming aware of how to protect our patients. True. If a device were to fail due to one of these vulnerabilities that we heard about, it not only will physicians but also patients can lose confidence in specific devices, and those devices are part of healthcare infrastructure in general, and we need to do everything that we can to protect the infrastructure and the institution of healthcare so that we can continue delivering the best care to our citizens and keep them healthy. And many of these devices are life-saving, life-changing devices, and we really don't want to have anyone lose faith. In, in what they can what they can provide our patients. True, every single one of them was designed for a specific purpose and their purpose built. Uh, unfortunately, some of them have these chips or components in them that are vulnerable as Christian and Jeff had told us about. Um, but personally, I'm so proud that this is happening in Phoenix, um, bringing everyone to the table in a partnership model so that we can have these open discussions and stay ahead of the curve. Absolutely. And that's where we're at. We're right at this intersection of technology and patient care. And what we all really want is just to continue delivering high quality patient care. And sometimes it feels a little bit like we embrace the technology piece for what it is. And it's totally amazing what we can do for our patients. But the regulations and the requirements such as patient confidentiality and patient safety might lag a little behind some of this cutting edge technology. So it's just being aware of those things. Yeah, we, I know even in my home or in my car, I have this expectation that the equipment is going to work the way it's supposed to work. And we heard that that's how physicians are treating a lot of their equipment. However, as an infrastructure, we really have to focus on this idea of preventive care of the infrastructure, the same way we do preventive care of particular patients. We heard from Dr. Schwartz that there's new policies coming in in order to protect those systems, because we're not going to prevent the attacks. Hackers right. are coming in all the time. And, um, and Patrick told us about his view on how to retrain or include additional training in medical school. He echoed what Christian and Jeff said that not every single medical student is going to become an expert in cybersecurity, and that's okay. But most definitely what he stated, what Patrick stated, was that there should be at least a minimal amount of exposure and training in bioinformatics during our quest to just provide the best patient care that we can. Yeah. So many times, and friends of mine who are in the IT support field, they always say a lot of the problem lies between the person and the keyboard, suggesting that it's a user 
error, but the cybersecurity summit actually opens our eyes to the fact that it may not be the user input. It's really there's malware or some other type of virus built into it. Um, but learning that uh, each of these entities, whether it's policy or device manufacturers or physicians, are dedicated to improving the quality of life of patients and improving their care is absolutely essential. And I'll throw back a word that we heard from Dr. Schwartz, which is cyber hygiene, which perhaps part of everybody's dialogue now should be uh, healthcare as well as cyber hygiene. To me, you know, cyber hygiene equals good patient care. So I would say that this summit is really exactly what you said, that platform for all of the experts that need to be at the table to be here. And it's a wonderful collaboration between our cybersecurity experts with clinicians, because really we do need to have everybody at the table to figure out how to make this work on behalf of the patients. Yeah. And this topic for me still remains very exciting. Our discussions could go on and on, but unfortunately our time is up for today. Lift shits out like a well-functioning GI system. Bright out like a good night's sleep. The Reimagined Medicine Podcast is brought to you by the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Join us again as we highlight aspects of clinical care, education, and research in an ongoing endeavor to reimagine medicine. Our podcast team is Dr. Katie Bright, Dr. Johnny Lifshitz, Beth Smith, and the media production team at the UA College of Medicine, Phoenix. Our theme song, Dungeon of Return Days, was written and recorded by Midair Machine, the song is accessible on freemusicarchive.org and used under the CC BYSA 4.0 license.